rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Rumors of Grace. As always, Bob Hutchins here. I want to welcome you to our next episode. I believe we're on episode number 78, or is it 79? Uh, time is flying by. We've had some great guests in the past month. Today is no exception. I'm super excited. Um, we're going to take a little bit of detour from our normal fare, but I think you're going to love who I have with me today. Before I do, I just want to thank all of you. I know last time I mentioned to put pause on the podcast and go and rate and review, and a few of you did it. I just want to thank you for that because it really does help. We saw our rankings go up and we get more listeners. So I'd like to ask you to do it again in this episode. Just put pause right now, go to wherever you're listening to this and rank, review, give us five stars if you can. Tell us a little bit about why you like my podcast and uh, if we're doing a good job or not. I would really appreciate it. All right, let's jump right into this episode of Rumors of Grace. With me on Zoom today is Dr. Tara Swart. She is a neuroscientist. She's a former medical doctor that specialized in psychiatry. She's currently a lecturer at MIT Sloan, and she's author of the best-selling book, the Source, The Secrets of the Universe, The Science of the Brain. She's also a trustee for the Lady Garden Foundation, a charity for gynecological cancer. And I'm talking to her from the UK this morning. Tara, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Bob. Thank you so much for having me on Rumors of Grace. I was really intrigued to have this conversation with you. Yes, yes. For those listeners who've listened to me for um, any length of time, Tara, they will know my love and interest and even academic study of psychology, the human experience. And that's really what this is all about. Um, I stumbled upon your book. I can't even remember, Tara, how I found it. But um, someone who is uh, trained, uh, a doctor, a neuroscientist, a psychiatrist, you've studied the brain for years, uh, but this merging of science and spirituality and really looking at it from the science of the brain uh, and being someone of science uh, who also is open to the spiritual experience uh, got me really intrigued. So I listened to your book, The Source. I actually listened to it on Audible uh, as I drive back and forth to the office and my world uh, over a few days, and uh, I just loved it. So congratulations. And I know from following you on Instagram, the book has been translated now. How many languages? 36. That's amazing. So, uh, <clears throat> I think that spiritual side of me that I hadn't really made so public before I wrote the book, part of part of that came out in, you know, what I call manifesting all of these translations. Um, and everyone at Penguin Random House in the UK was, was in on it. It was, it became, you know, something that really connected us and brought us so much joy. Um, even though at the time I was very unaware of what a good number of translations was. So I didn't realize how amazing it was till quite a lot later. 
Yeah, that is amazing. How long has the book been out? Um, it came out in the UK in February 2019, and it came out in the States in October 2019. And then mm. the paperbacks came out a year later. Okay, so roughly a year and a half the book has yeah. been out, give or take. That's amazing. I, I wonder, um, and we can talk about this later, uh, but I wonder uh, since it came out at the end of 19 and then it started to take off during COVID if, you know, it would, the timing was fortuitous for people to not only have time to possibly read, but also to, to maybe think about these things at a deeper level. It, it's interesting, the success of the book during the time period. Mm-hmm. It's one of these things, because obviously I was writing it the year before, so I was writing it in 2018. And as I was writing it, I was thinking, this book is going to come out at a time when it's so needed. You know, there were some things going on in the world kind of building up already. It was like pressure was building up in the world. Um, you know, in terms of what you said about the psychology of people, the connectedness or lack thereof, um, and the Me Too movement was, you know, really gathering pace at that time. So I thought this book's going to come out at the perfect time. That felt very, that felt like it was meant to be. And then when it came out, um, you know, again, there were sort of world events in 2019. And so it was, you know, it became a bestseller as soon as it came out in the UK. Then a lot of people have written to me on Instagram and said that they've reread it in 2020. Um, and obviously the US audience would have more like, you know, read it for the first time or mm. listened to it for the first time. You've just um, reminded me of that week that I had to go into a studio and read the book out all day, every day. <laughs> I, I, I actually lost my voice in the middle of the week. But... Hopefully it didn't remind you of too much trauma. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. Well, I do love um, when authors read their own books. There's something, there's something that is connected and meaningful and in the inflections, the the ownership of, it's almost like your own child that you're talking mm. about versus mm. when you hear someone else that is a voice actor. And I, and I realize not everyone has the, the time or the ability or the voice necessarily to read their mm. own books. But I, I think with a topic like this, it's so, it's so neat when, when you hear an author read their own books. Thank you. Um, yeah, so for the US version, they decided to keep my voice, which was nice, even though in the written version, some words were changed. Um, mm. That that didn't happen for the Audible. And I have become friends on Instagram with the actress that read out the book in French. So oh, that's wow. nice. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that other languages have, have made it into an Audible <laughs> yet. Well, you know, maybe, maybe you can you can learn another language, or if you know one, you can do it yourself in another language. <laughs> I'm quite multilingual, but not good enough to read out the whole book. <laughs> well, before we jump into some of the questions that I have, and I, I, some of these questions I think my specific listeners will find fascinating and interesting and helpful, I'd like to know a little bit about, for those people who haven't read your book. I know in the source, you talk some about this. Can you talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and maybe your journey into academics and maybe how you landed at the source? We don't have to, you don't have to go into a ton of detail, but I think it is important to set the stage for some of my questions today. 
Thanks, Bob. I think it's it's one of those stories that looking back, everything makes sense. But, you know, as I, I guess maybe that's everyone feels like this about life. But as I was going through it, it feels like there were a lot of changes. So my parents um, emigrated from India to the UK and I was born in in London during the 70s. And so obviously, you know, I went to school in the UK. My friends were English, British people. And so I, it's, it, you know, it really started there where I had the, I had to keep almost two lives separate. So at home there was yoga, meditation, incense. We ate, you know, we were vegetarian, but we also ate in an Ayurvedic way. Um, in our culture and religion, we believe, believe in reincarnation, for example. So that's like a common, commonly accepted um, fact, as it were. Um, and then at school, there was nothing like that. Um, <clears throat> and so I learned from a very young age to keep those two things separate and know how to behave appropriately in, you know, different settings. And then um, you may or may not be aware, but Indian parents all want their children to be doctors. So <laughs> being the first child, that, there was definitely a massive expectation. Um, and, you know, my aunts and uncles and grandparents are um, university professors and judges and things like that. So there's definitely high expectations to be academic. Um, and actually, I really blossomed at medical school. I was good at science, um, but I truly blossomed at medical school. Um, so to the point that I got offered the chance to do this PhD in neuroscience, which I then took three years out to go and do. I thought I was going to become a neurologist, but a bit like you, and I got back to the clinical um, school and I got to talk to people about psychology and psychiatry. I just thought that was so fascinating, you know, real glimpse inside people's minds, not just the structure of the brain, but also what they're thinking, how they're feeling, how your brain can play tricks on you. Um, so I became a psychiatrist. I did that for seven years. And then I had become quite disillusioned with just the, you know, the basically prescribing of medicine, like nothing, nothing holistic, the terrible state that the, these, my patients' lives are in really, you know, fractured families and unable to work. And I just thought there must be a, a better answer for this. And for me, the journey was to make this massive career change and leave, you know, a very respected and stable profession to start up my own coaching practice. And this was around the time of the global financial crisis. So being a former psychiatrist, I managed to launch my business quite well, dealing with extremely stressed executives. And I learned at that point that it doesn't matter if you're a psychiatric patient in the NHS or you know, a high-flung executive in financial services, everybody's just a human being at the end of the day. So then I, you know, I was just coaching, but neuroscience became a really popular topic in business and leadership. So I started speaking more. I got picked up by MIT Sloan, which obviously was a huge privilege, is a huge privilege. Um, and I, yeah, I just started diversifying with what I was doing and trying to apply neuroscience to all sorts of things, working with more varied people, um, writing some other books and blogs and things like that. And then I became the world's first neuroscientist in residence at a five-star hotel in London. And that got a lot of press. And so Penguin reached out to me to write a book, but more about diet and exercise and mindfulness. But I said I had this idea about 
merging science and spirituality and they were very very keen on the idea so that's that's how I got to the source and writing it was very therapeutic for me but more so when it came out the reception to me almost like making myself whole again by writing that book and bringing the science and the spirituality together where I'd always kept them apart was was an amazing process and and Mm. outcome that's really awesome yeah, because your journey is is fascinating to me as someone who this whole podcast is about the ever changing and evolving journey of the human experience, both mm. in the the real world as we call it, in the spiritual uh, understanding, but also in the in the struggle too. Because I think, regardless of of where you come, what culture and what framework you're looking at life, uh, many times the the difficulty, the pain, and the hardship. Uh, is the way, right? It's the door. And I can imagine probably in your own life, going through so many of these changes, the expectations of of maybe family and then reaching that point where you're like, well, I've gotten here, but this isn't really fulfilling or it doesn't meet the deepest needs of my soul. And then finally getting to the point through that evolution where you are now. I, I'm sure that it wasn't as smooth a transitions maybe as as maybe we can talk about here in three or four minutes. But no. I know that that was certainly, I'm sure, part of your journey, which which is, to me, it's healthy and it's important for us to see it in people like you who, well, many people would say, she's the perfect example of success. You know, I can never attain to that level. And yet, I think what we see from the source and what you shared is your journey is much like anyone else's um, to find that place where you really feel you're doing and you know what you need to do and be where you need to be. So that's a beautiful story too. Thank you so much. And I, I've really um, resonated with something that you said, which is, you know, this isn't the deepest calling of my soul. I think the real failure would have been to keep doing a job that wasn't that, you know. Mm. So although it was a risk to leave what I had, um, I just, I partly wrote the book because I don't necessarily want other people to get to that low point that I got to before they say, okay, now something has to change. Um, I think that you either go through something like a bereavement or a divorce, or you just naturally come to some sort of midlife crisis point for, you know, no, no obvious external reason. And part of what I wanted to share was how people could proactively try to make sure their life was, you know, the deepest um, fulfillment of their soul without necessarily having to go through a big life challenge. Mm. That's great. Let's jump into some of the topics that you talk about. And I have some questions that I've been dying to ask you. The name of your book is called The Source, The Secrets of the Universe, The Science of the Brain. And when people hear that and they, they, they see that book, for many of us, we immediately go to, okay, here's another new age thinker, here's somebody playing off the secret, whatever preconceived notions. And the interesting thing in your book, you, you do kind of talk a little bit about that, but you look at it from a scientific and a science of the brain. And one of the important things that I know I've been studying and thinking a lot about lately, and I think it is applicable to every human being on the face of the planet for the most part, is this idea of metacognition 
in what metacognition simply means it sounds like a big word but it means thinking about your thinking mm -hmm. uh, ste stepping back and asking yourself if your thought processes are healthy and helpful and this whole idea that you're not your thoughts um to be able to observe your thoughts it, it's a really high form of self-awareness and in any type of therapy or counseling that's really what you're trying to get to is mm -hmm. can i separate myself from what i think in my brain and and just because i think them doesn't mean it's who i am or i have to act on them and that's a big part of of your book the source mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that concept of metacognition thinking about your thinking and why it's so important for us in our lives to to possibly get to the point of what we're talking about is to maybe find the true calling of our soul or to be fulfilled or to get to the point where I think I need to get to. Can you, can you unpack that, that whole metacognition for us a little bit? Sure. So you've defined it beautifully already. And I would say that the reason we need to think about stepping back and almost fact checking ourselves and our own thinking is because that, so, you know, I've written in the book about the concept of neuroplasticity, which is changing the way that you think, changing some of the ways that you behave. It's, it's based on the fact that the brain remains flexible throughout life. However, what's not spoken about so much is how malleable and almost vulnerable the brain is, particularly a child's brain. And so the experiences that you've had in childhood they're deeply entrenched in your neural pathways and they become like reflex thoughts and behaviors and that internal narrative that we never question because it's, it's us that's thinking it. So, you know, it's like if you had a best friend or a sibling that you were really close to, you might counsel them in a certain way about things that they um, take to be a fact you might say you know I might say to you Bob you know is that really true does that apply to everybody could you possibly think differently about this but we don't say that to ourselves and that's what metacognition is it's saying to yourself is this actually a fact is am I saying this because of things that my parents or teachers said to me when I was a child so there are some common things in the language of of modern society which are life is hard, you can't have it all, don't, you know, don't ask for too much. And so there's, there's that from outside. And then inside, of course, we're all that little child who is afraid that they'll fail at things, who's afraid that they're not liked, who feels like if they talk about their achievements, they'll get told off for bragging. So, so the reason that I wrote about metacognition is to ask people, do you have deeply entrenched beliefs about yourself that could be holding you back from fulfilling your true potential or, you know, like you said, finding your soul's purpose? And we, we never take time to step back and ask ourselves things like that. We may have some dreams or we may even think, you know, I had a dream, but now I have to put food on the table. So I just focus on the day job. Um, so it was really about stepping back and being intentional and not always identifying with your thoughts and your emotions. I think a lovely analogy is if you were sitting on a bench watching traffic go past and a red car correlated to anger, every time you see a red car, you could either feel angry or you could say, that's interesting, that's a red car. 
So that's a little bit like saying, I've just had a negative thought about someone, but that doesn't mean that you're negative or that you're, you know, envious. It means that sometimes we all have certain thoughts, but that doesn't mean, you know, that's who we are. So it's about just noticing what your thinking patterns are. And the fact that for survival, we're wired to think more negatively than positively and, you know, trying to overwrite that to some extent. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I've I've read some studies about how negative thoughts or or comments or anything negative that comes into our brain sticks to us like like velcro whereas positive things take a while to stick. That's interesting. Probably some evolutionary psychology in there to keep us from being eaten by by bears and immediate dangers, I'm sure. But yeah. it's interesting how we can read a hundred emails from people who are neutral or positive, but it's that one negative email where someone criticizes us that that we stay awake at night and, and think about. Absolutely. <laughs> because of some of these ideas in your own studies, you talk a lot about neuroplasticity and this idea, I can you can you educate me a little bit about the concept of neuroplasticity? As I understand, historically, doctors and scientists believed that you know, at a certain point, at a certain age, things were um, the connections in your brain, ways of personalities, ways of doing things were pretty set and you couldn't change. You can't teach an old dog new tricks, the saying goes. But a lot of the studies and science and things that we're, we're finding out in the past 20, 30 years, and even currently, is that the brain can be changed all the way, almost all the way through life. Can you help help our listeners understand the science of neuroplasticity? Sure. I mean, to me, it's the most exciting sort of discovery that's come out of science in the last couple of decades. And so I, I told you my my life story. And I did start by saying I was born in the 70s. But just to put some timelines there, I did my PhD 25 years ago. And we didn't know about neuroplasticity then. So, mm. you know, for me to come back to the science and for it to have changed so dramatically and, and the fact that it's to do with your brain being flexible and the fact that you can teach an old dog new tricks, that's a huge message of hope. And I think it's particularly important at the moment where it's easy to feel hopeless and uncertain about the future. So basically, yes, we used to think that by the time you stopped physically growing, so sort of 18, 19, that your brain also became set and that as an adult, you would continue to, you know, manage your health, your behaviors, your relationships in the way that, you know, you, you started to from that age. What we know now is that that process is very active of the brain, you know, being shaped by everything that it's exposed to. Um, till we're about 25. From 25 to 65, if you do things to keep your brain plastic and flexible, so that's learning things, new experiences, mingling with different sorts of people, then you can keep your brain very flexible, you know, more able to be adaptive and responsive. And if you start with some good lifestyle behaviors. And I'm just talking about the general things, you know, like good quality sleep, doing some exercise, eating healthily, hydration, et cetera. If you really take care of those from your late thirties to your early forties, you can even go some way to preventing cognitive decline that, you know, can start in, in one's seventies or eighties or nineties. Or so 
it's just a much more dynamic um, organ than we ever believed before. And it's important to say that that can have good or bad connotations. So if we take the example that you gave of, you know, receiving emails or comments, positive and negative, if you do dwell on the negative comments, you're actually reinforcing to your brain that that's a fact. Mm. Um, so that's not unconnected to the fact that later you may find yourself spiraling with negative thoughts or anxiety. It's because you've embedded, you know, you've embedded that more strongly in your brain. If you say, and this is a form of, this is an example of metacognition. If you say, okay, I got a hundred emails, let's say about my book and 80 or 90 people really liked the book and 10 or 20 people didn't like it. If you say to yourself, you know, people are different, people have their opinion, that's a small percentage of people that didn't like my book, that's okay, it's not for everyone, then you wouldn't be still thinking about that when you go to bed at night. But if you kind of keep thinking, oh, why didn't those people write, like my book? What, you know, what, why couldn't I have written a book that everybody loved? Then it would sort of stick in your mind. So that's the combination of neuroplasticity and metacognition, that if you can step back, question your thinking, you can actually mold your brain towards more abundance and positivity than that negative spiral that's kind of more common mm. in the human condition. Yeah, you, you mentioned abundance and in your book, I love the way you address this because it's an argument that you hear when people start talking about manifesting things or the law of attraction, there's kind of different schools of thought, you know, on one extreme, people say, well, that's all bunk and uh, you know, you got to work hard and it never worked for me. And you can't just sit on your bum and, and expect things to happen and just be thinking positively. And the other side is you have this, uh, the, these amazing stories of, of people going from, from homeless to being a multimillionaire and, and their business was a success overnight. And I love in your book, what you talk about is, is yes, there is something to this idea of abundant thinking and manifestation in your your thoughts affecting your reality however it doesn't work if you don't put the action into it and there are some very specific things that are really important that you must put together with your um your thought life uh, in order for you to see the reality of them in your life and so i wanted to maybe camp there for a little while and talk about um, this concept of abundant thinking as it as it pertains to to science to action to real life application uh, and maybe i'll start with a question is can we merge um, is there a or maybe is there a science that actually explains the law of attraction mm -hmm. um Great question. And um, you've already sort of um, <clears throat> busted what I call uh, one of those manifestation myths, which is that manifestation is about just thinking of the thing that you want and waiting for it to magically come into your life somehow. It's, it's absolutely not that. Um, and I think, you know, these stories of homeless to millionaire, I... I haven't got proof of one of those stories, but there may be one or two stories like that, but most of the stories aren't that dramatic, you know, they're more realistic. And I mean, I think as you alluded to earlier, 
But some people would look at me and think that's just, you know, that's the story of success. There are still people that say that I must have been lucky, but I always say you make your own luck. I have worked so, so hard to get everything that I have. Um, None of it's been handed to me at all. I I had a privileged education, um, but obviously my parents worked hard to, to give me that. So the science that underpins the law of attraction, and this is really exciting when I first saw that, yes, there is science that underpins it, is to do with... Um, the way that your brain filters information. Mm. So we are bombarded with millions of bits of information every single day. And there's a statistic that says that what you read now in the New York Times in a week is the amount of information that somebody would have experienced in their entire life a hundred years ago. Mm. And even then people were overloaded with information. So, you know, now it's crazy. Um, So to deal with that, the brain has a natural mechanism called selective filtering. And Mm. so it filters out information that's not important to you. Um, And some examples of that are, you're not aware of your clothing on your body all day because that's excess information that you don't really need. You put your clothes on, you know that you're dressed, you don't need to feel your clothes all day. And an, um, an opposite example is, if you've just purchased a new expensive item like a car or, you know, not necessarily that expensive, you suddenly notice that car everywhere when you drive around because your brain is primed to notice that. Um, so the first thing that happens is that information, information that isn't really relevant to you is filtered out. The second stage is selective attention. So of what is left in, you pay attention to some things more than others. So some stuff is filtered out completely without you even being aware. And then what's left in, you pay attention to for various reasons. Um, We know that if you even just went out and bought a sandwich and the the sandwich was $2.50, that that number is then pegged in your brain for the next financial calculation that you make. Um, And the the third part of of these brain processes is value tagging, which is that your brain actually tags in order of importance the Mm. things that it's paid attention to. And there's two parts to that tagging. One is completely logical. So, you know, based only on facts and data and things that you sort of, you need to tick off your, you know, your task list. Task list. Um, and the other one is more emotional. So it's to do with things that relate to your sense of belonging, your sense of identity, both at work and in life. Um, your sense of feeling safe as part of your community, your team, your family, etc. And so if you just get up in the morning, go to work, spend the evenings with your family and you don't do any metacognition, you don't set you know, intentions for how you'd like your life to be. Maybe you've long forgotten what you thought your soul's purpose was going to be and you're just you know, on autopilot in life. Then those processes happen without you being conscious of them. If you bring very much to the front of your mind and you, you know, have heavily biased in your thoughts, the things that you really want in life. And I'm not just talking about material things. I'm talking about your relationships, how you want your life to feel, how much purpose, you know, you, you want to experience in your life, then your brain is already more primed to not filter something related to that out 
to pay more attention to it when it is in your mind and to tag it higher up in importance so that your brain can then, so that's the priming part, you're then more likely to notice and grasp opportunities that relate to the things that you might mm. want in life. Mm. So, um, I mean, this is too crude an example perhaps, but you know, when Penguin Random House sent me an email, I could have said, well, no, I, I, I'm not looking to write another book now, so I won't have that meeting with him. Whereas obviously I just was open to it, but there are so many things that we avoid or don't notice or turn down because we haven't really thought about what we want to do. I actually was not looking to write a book at that time, by the way, but um, I, I, I did have this idea about the laws of attraction and visualization and how they would be better explained by cognitive science than you know, previous ways of explaining it than, well, you know, like you said, the new age thinking. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for sharing and educating us on that because what I hear you saying and correct me if I'm wrong, wrong, Tara is what you're really doing when you enter into an intentional thought process of, I'm going to think about what I want to achieve. And what's more important is you prioritize those thoughts and you put value tags on those thoughts. And therefore it's what becomes the most uh, important thing in your outer life. I, it's interesting. I, my family and my oldest son, his wife, my daughter-in-law, we we're on this kind of group group chat and every once in a while I'll send them something I'm thinking about to maybe give, wish them a good morning or a good day. And, tell them that I love them. And one of the things I said yesterday, as I said, I wrote this down in my journal, is our outer reality is a direct uh, reflection of our inner reality. And of course, that's not an original thought, but I try to meditate on that and think about, um, you know, this, the, and Gandhi said, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. Others have said, you know, we don't see the world we don't see things as they truly are. We see things as we are that this connection of being intentional about saying, I'm going to smile and be happy and choose to see joy around me today. Something as simple as that um, is the, it, it can be interpreted as you're manifesting that i.e. you're making that happen mm -hmm. or was it always there? And what you've done is prioritize those things as what's most important. You didn't see the things that were there uh, and you didn't participate in it. It wasn't that the world changed to you, but actually you're seeing a reflection of what's going on inside of you. Am I, am I making sense? Am I saying that correctly? I absolutely love this. My, my heart has just melted listening to that because it's the kind of thing that I meditate on and ponder about. And I, I think it's 100% spot on. And that's why abundant thinking is important because if you feel, rightly or wrongly, that resources are scarce, there's not enough jobs out there for everyone, there's not enough potential partners out there for everyone, then you will live in you know in such a way that you believe that there's scarcity and you know a common example of that is that you can't be happy for your friends and family when good things happen to them because somewhere deep down you think that means it's less likely to happen for you if you don't believe that at all 
then you you simply feel joy and inspiration when you see good things happen to other people. And that, you know, both of those things accumulate. Um, so, uh, you know, as you were saying, is it that you manifested it or is it that it was there and you didn't notice it? My immediate gut reaction was, does it matter? Right. Exactly. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It only matters to the degree of, am I an observer and I need to change my focus and attention or am I the source of, of it? And I, and I guess you're right. It doesn't matter, but I'm, my personality is I want to understand and I want to say, and I, and I want to be able to, to, to know what's going on so that I mm -hmm. can, um, put some sort of construct around it, which can be a bad thing, but also to just really know what's going on. And, and part of metacognition is to think about what I'm really dwelling on and to think about my thinking and to say, if, if something negative happens to me, or I find there's a pattern in my life that seems to be recurring, that isn't good for me and to my mm -hmm. relationships, am I the source of that? Or am I not responsible many times for what other people do? Do you see where I'm going? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, okay. It can get a little confusing because it's like, where does my responsibility or my thinking or end and someone else's begin? Uh, and what are those boundaries? I don't know if I'm making sense, but but I think that's where I I need to to really understand what's truly going on as much as I can. Yeah, um, you're making complete sense to me. This is definitely my kind of conversation. So. Um, the source, you mentioned the source, but obviously that is my book title, obviously has a spiritual connotation, but I've kind of used it as a metaphor throughout the book to say your brain kind of reaching its highest potential is the source. And so what I would say is whether, whether your brain is now noticing things that it didn't notice before, or it's actually affecting your thoughts and your behaviors so that you act differently in the outside world. It's the answer still comes down to that you are the architect of, you know, those things that are happening or not happening. And so I think there it's a bit of both. Um, it can be either. And that even though I'm a scientist and I teach at MIT and everything, I do believe in leaving a bit of room for magic and not mm. having to completely separate or pin down those two things. Mm. Um, but then in terms of what you went on to say, I think it's really important that even if it's other people, even if you have a negative interaction in, with another person, the thing that you can really change is yourself and the emotions that you've attached around that mm. situation. So, there, I believe that you are even more the architect. Um, you know, a, an example of not exhibiting metacognition is blaming everybody else for everything that goes wrong in your life. Um, it's such a good start to always ask yourself what part you could have played in something that went wrong that on the surface looks like it had nothing to do with you. And I, I'm going to quote two friends now with things that I think you'll love. So one was actually in the car today. I was talking to um, Dan, who's the co-founder of the uh, 
smart supplement company that I'm the chief science officer for. I'm actually the chief science and spirituality officer. I changed my title. Um, and he was looking for some quotes for something that he's writing. And he had said to me years ago when he read the source that he loved all the quotes that I'd picked for that. And so I know that we have that in common. And he said, oh, I have a new one that you'll really love. And I think you'll love it, Bob. It's when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Mm -hmm. Now that's another one that you could ponder as much as what you've just mm -hmm. said about, am I the architect or you know, is, it, is it happening in life? So you know, how, how can that be possible? But that's also because you don't notice somebody that you could use as a mentor until you're thinking along the same lines as them. And so this happened to me, I was on a panel with some other ladies and somebody um, who's quite a high profile actor introduced herself and said, I'm an actor and I've chosen to live on the higher vibration of love. And I was like, wow. And I thought, I want to speak to this woman and find out more about, you know, how she's, he, she's got there. And she's been so helpful to me. Um, and somebody asked me a question, what do you do if you've got toxic people in your life? And I explained one of the exercises that's in the book, the people tree, um, and said that sometimes you have to like have some space and distance from people if they're consistently putting you down. Um, sometimes it may, you know, you may be able to find a good response that sort of, you know, pushes back on what they're saying and is helpful to yourself and them. And this lady that I just mentioned, she, when she was asked the same question, she said, think of 20 things that you love about that person who's saying negative things to you. Mm. And I did that exercise after that panel meeting and I can't tell you how good it made me feel. It doesn't change the person or what's happened, but it, it, it made me feel free. And so I did follow up with her and say, I would you know, love to talk to you about um, this journey that you've been on. And I've been purposefully cultivating, trying to find love and like you said, joy in everything. And it's actually, it's actually completely life-changing. Mm. Wow. That's a, I get goosebumps just hearing that because that's such a strong um, choice that you make, right? Um, when, when there is a <clears throat> quote negative relationship or person or, mm -hmm. or a problem that you perceive as a problem, right? It's so easy and our brains are trained in our, in our cultures to, to really see ourselves because we all have biases, right? Tara, we all have, we think we're right. That person's wrong. Mm -hmm. My way of seeing things, I'm the victim, whatever it may be. Yeah. And yet choosing to say, I'm going to sit down and think throughout the day, what are 20 things that I love about this other person that I'm having a difficult time with? It really forces your brain, like you said, to create the, those value tags where you're no longer thinking of this person as just this or just that, but you actually open your mind up to saying, well, here's 20 other things that are good and positive and things that I love about this person. And then, then all of a sudden your brains begin, can begin to prioritize those things in a much different order. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's great. Okay. One of the things too, I have a question before I get into some of the practical applications of your book, because I know a lot of people are thinking is, well, what are some practical ways that I can like make 
change this and implement some of these things. Obviously, go go get your book and read it. But there's one other question I had, and, and in your book, you mention it, and a lot of us deal with it, myself included, is how do you deal with imposter syndrome? Meaning imposter syndrome is that constant thought. For me, I'm in a position of leadership in my work, and I'm constantly, I'm at a point in my age and my career where people look to me to be, to have some sort of sense of authority in different item, different ways and different things. And I think we all kind of reach that point, many of us in, in our careers. And yet so many times I'm sitting there going, I don't know how to answer this question, or I'm in over my head, or what if they find out that I'm not as smart as I think? I lead lend on to be this this whole negative thinking about ourselves that we're not good enough, that we're not smart enough, that we're not mm. qualified. Can you just give a couple of strategies for overcoming that and really observing that in a in a healthy way? Mm -hmm. I think the first thing that's really important for people to know is quite how common imposter syndrome is. Mm. If you actually start having conversations with people about it, I. I'll be surprised if you find anyone that says that they haven't felt like that, at least at some point in their life. And, and to be honest, for most people, I think a lot of the time. So that is a great sort of normalizer and equalizer because it's, it's like it's a shameful secret. So we don't discuss it. So then for, we delude ourselves that it's only us that thinks like that all the time. And then there are quite a few things you can do. One is if you have a very recurring theme to the particular thoughts that you have about being an imposter, then you can create what, you know, you can call it a mantra or a positive affirmation. That is a statement that over time, you can use to overwrite this negative belief that you have about yourself. So that's neuroplasticity. And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, a statement that's the opposite that couldn't possibly be true. I'm talking about something that helps to remove that negative mm. thought. So let's, let's pick your one. You know, what if people find out that I'm not as smart as they think I am? Then, you, you know, instead of saying, I've got the highest IQ in the world, which, <laughs> you know, may, may or may not be true, but, you know, if it's not true, won't necessarily make you feel better. Definitely not true. <laughs> <laughs> then you could say something like, I mean, I, would, I genuinely think if that happened to me, I would, what I would think was if, you know, if, if somebody, let's say a student at MIT asks me a question and I can't answer it and I feel like I should have known the answer, I would take that as an opportunity for learning. Yes. So finding out that I'm not smart means that there's something new I can learn. Mm. Um, and so in that way, I've become a lot more comfortable with sometimes saying, actually, I don't know the answer to that question, but I will do the research and get back to you. Mm. Um, and because one of my friends actually took my class, he said to me, because once or twice you said, I don't know the answer to that, it made me feel like whenever you did answer a question, it was, actually, it was based on the latest mm. research and you really knew yes. what the answer mm. was. So that was nice to get that feedback from him. Um, the other thing is that, and this is a segue into the practical parts of the book, because there are a lot of meditations or visualizations in the book. And you had it on Audible, so obviously you got to like hear my voice. And there's one about identifying with a powerful icon. So where you've said things like, you know, at my age, people expect this and that. Try to, you know, look back through history or even in your own, you know, family or people that you know, or somebody famous 
and find an example of a man about the same age as you who achieved what you feel you know you'd like to be achieving at the moment and mm. spend some time when you do your journaling or your you know your pondering as you do just thinking about all the attributes that that person has and acting those attributes out yourself um you can even go a bit further and you can if you have a photo of the person you or a picture you can look at it and then close your eyes and imagine that that person's in the room with you and then imagine that you are that person and really channel those attributes that you admire often mm. when we sit down and do that as an exercise we find that we we do actually have those attributes so i have a a funny story of um a, one of the professors at MIT who said that you know, one of the things that they felt they didn't have that they really wanted was to have a voice to be heard to like, you know, say important things and have an impact on people. And the group that they were in all said, you're a tenured professor at MIT, of course you have a voice. And so sometimes we're still fighting for things that we don't have to fight for anymore. We just haven't really acknowledged that we've already achieved them. Yes, that's, that's a great point. That is a really great point. And I love what you said about the more that you practice saying, I don't know, but I will research or go find out and get back with you. I think the more trust that you build with the people around you, your team, your relationships, because if you make something up or try to hedge the question, then there people will find out and they will begin to intuitively know that you don't know. Mm. And that doesn't build trust. Um, no. And that that's good. That's great advice. You talk about vision boards. You talk about, and again, this is not an original idea. There's other people, and many people have talked about it, and they've and they've been popular things in the last you know 10, 15, 20 years. But I'd love to hear your take on the importance of uh, a vision board. A you know many there's many different names for those, but maybe just i'd love to hear your take on that and why you think it's so important from a scientific and from somebody who studied neuroscience and mm -hmm. who was a psychiatrist and, and and you've done the work on this why do you think a vision board is so important mm -hmm. um well first of all the visual sense is a very strong one for us humans so although auditory is also strong so you know hypnosis for example work, or hypnotherapy works through auditory suggestions um it's a bit less practical to be going around all day with your airpods in listening to some kind of you know positive um affirmation so the the visual element of it has a strong priming effect on our brain more than words for example so you talked about journaling, you know, you could write in your journal a list of things that you would like to happen in your life. And you could look at that daily and repeat it. And that would be good. But if you had a visual version of that, it actually impacts different parts of your brain mm. and is more likely to bypass the logical parts of your brain and get deeper into your subconscious. So there's actually a psychological, um, it's become a recognized psychological phenomenon called the Tetris effect. So I don't know if you're of the age group who used to play oh, yeah. Tetris. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do you remember that when you used to play it last thing at night and then put, put the Game Boy down and close your eyes to go to sleep, that you could still see the little bricks falling down mm -hmm. in your mind's eye? 
So that's basically how a vision board works. But for the reasons that we discussed earlier, I actually call them action boards to, to really make that statement that you can't just create a fantasy collage of what you want in your life and then do nothing to make it come true. And I mean, you could call this a coincidence, but I think it, there must be more to it than that. But the motto of MIT is actually mens et manus, which means mind and hand. And so um, the, you know, the action board, as I or the vision board, has an impact on your mind, but you have to go out and use your hands to make these things come true, as it were. Um, so if you create a visual, a board with visual images, metaphorical or literal. So, you know, if, you, if you're actually house hunting, you could have a house on there. But if you, um, like when I was writing my book, I found a picture of a really old fashioned typewriter that I just really liked the look of. And I'd looked at all sorts of things like pens and books and they didn't really resonate with me, but I had this old fashioned typewriter and that meant that I write a best-selling book. Um, and then you look at it frequently, at least once a day, preferably more. So some people make it into the screensaver for their phone or their laptop. I keep mine next to my bed so that I see it at least twice a day. Um, and you visualize the things on it being true. So, you know, you see yourself in that house, you see yourself on, you know, on the Amazon bestseller list, you see yourself um, with the pet that you really want, or, you know, you see yourself in the country that you really want to go to then those three parts to me make it really, really strong. So you create this board, you look at it daily, you visualize it, be, those things becoming true. And then that primed brain goes out into the real world and notices and grasps opportunities to make that come true. But having said that, I have to say that some of the things that I've been doing these boards for about 12 years now, some of the things that have come true have been extraordinary, inexplicable coincidences. Um, but most of it, I have worked hard to make make it come true. Mm. Mm. That's that's amazing. That's amazing, and I I love your explanation of that because you know we learn through our senses and being able to actually both hear but also see those things. As I'm putting together the pieces of the past hour, it helps us to prioritize those things in our brain and put a value on them when historically many times the things we want to do or become can get drowned out uh, and deprioritized because we're not making them a priority. That's great. That's great. Well, this hour has flown by, so I don't want to take much more of your time, but um, maybe just a couple of bullet points. Number one, what is the most important thing that someone can do physically, emotionally, and spiritually for themselves? So maybe you can answer that, that question briefly. And then lastly, when you get done with that, I want to know how people can connect with you and follow your work. Thanks. So one each for physical, emotional, and spiritual. Okay. Okay. So physical... I normally talk about things which I've mentioned like sleep and exercise, but I would say that getting out in nature has mm. now been proven through research to be even more important than those other things in terms of brain health and physical health. Emotional, this to me relates to um, that Japanese phenomenon of ikigai, so your purpose. So you, you, if you have a purpose that transcends yourself, so it's not just 
I do this job so I can earn enough money to live. If you have a higher purpose than that, then that leads to much better emotional regulation and emotional health. I mean, it's a bit, these things are a bit intermingled, but I mean, for spiritual, I would just say the best thing to do in terms of so many scientific pieces of evidence about reduction in stress levels, the brainwave states that you're in, the folding of the brain is meditation. So, and you know, prayer is included as a mindfulness activity. So prayer, meditation, yoga, that kind of thing, mm. the spiritual. And then for getting in touch with me, well, you tracked me down on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> That's the place that I'm the most interactive with people. And, you know, I reply to everything myself. Um, I am on Twitter. So on Instagram, I'm Dr. Tara Swart. On Twitter, I'm Tara Swart. I do have a website, uh, taraswart.com. And my online programs and things are all on the MIT Sloan website. But in, Instagram is the one if you really want to sort of, you know, daily updates and interaction. And is there a new book coming? <laughs> no. <laughs> no? One's enough for now. <laughs> well, I've actually written two other books. This is my third, but it's my first one by myself. But I'm much more of a talker than a writer. So I love doing podcasts. Um, yeah, this was great. Thank you yes. so much for your time. And, and I want to thank you for um, just writing the book because it's been helpful for me. And I hope that I've turned other people onto it and they can go to Amazon or any, any place they buy books. And it's The Source by Dr. T Tara, Tara Swart, S-W-A-R-T, correct? Yes. Well, thank you so much for asking such thoughtful questions. I was really looking forward to this conversation. Um, yes. And it's definitely, I think that there were some beautiful moments in it, like where we both really resonated and, and learned things. So that was lovely. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I could go on for hours. And so maybe <laughs> I'll have you back for a part two in part the near two. future. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Okay. Thank you, Tara. I hope you have a great day. Thanks, Paul. Bye. -bye. Paul. Bye.